Welcome to another episode of On Site. Today I am really excited because we have one of the legends in New York City real estate with us. He has built a formidable company in a very quiet, understated way. He started his company with a very small loan decades ago and has built it into one of the most formidable, successful real estate companies in New York City. In addition to that, he's written a couple of books. He uh, is involved in many different philanthropies in New York City. He is a resident of downtown, lives in the village in a townhouse. What a fascinating uh, gentleman. So much wisdom and knowledge about New York City. Today I get to speak to him. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Francis Greenberger. Francis, thanks so much for joining me. Well, Sean, it's a pleasure to be here. and I've always enjoyed our conversations in the past. and I'm sure I'm going to enjoy this one as well. I'm excited because I'm, I'm going to talk to you about some things that maybe you haven't spoken about and maybe written about. I know that you've written a couple of books, and your last book, uh, Risk Game, you open it up by talking a little bit about 50 West, and you talk about that being your legacy project. And I want to get to that, but first I want to talk a little bit about you know where you started and how you came to real estate. What is the first thing that you can remember that got you into this crazy business of ours? You know, I've reflected on this often, and uh, my family was not involved in the real estate business. Father worked in, in the publishing business. And uh, I was walking down Fifth Avenue one day, looking around, and uh, I realized that I had somehow in my mind chronicled a lot of the, the buildingscape of New York. And I could sort of, in my mind, think of a location and I kind of see the corner or see a particular building, even though it wasn't proximate to where I happened to be. And that was, I guess, the first moment that I realized that somehow I had a visceral connection with the built environment, even though it wasn't part of my upbringing, except that I grew up in, in New York City. So that, that kind of makes me think a little bit about creativity and the creative mind and, you know, being able to visualize a corner. I mean, I, I think that happens to some people, not necessarily only in cities. I'm sure that happens to people in some other environments, some rural environments. But it, it kind of is a skill set that I think is necessary to achieve some of the things that you've achieved in your career is that creative aspect of the mind and having that ability to tap into that to be successful, especially as a developer. Is that something you felt you always had, like, intrinsically as a part of you? Yes. And uh, if, if you talk to my staff, I'm sure they would tell you that I sometimes take too great an interest in, in the design of a lot of the projects that we're involved in, whether we're doing new construction or even minor retrofits of public hallway areas or amenity centers and things of that sort. So uh, I've always had that visual design uh, part of my brain. You know, the other thing that I think happens when, you know, you mentioned creativity is, as I think about being an entrepreneur, I think one of the things that is required is creativity, both in terms of a, not only visual, but really in think and how you think about the marketplace, how you think about where you want to 
uh, invest or, or, or try to add value. And I have a theory that if you try to do what everybody's doing, you become a generic competitor without independent idea. You will not be very successful because there are very large companies and capital providers who will be much more effective at sort of generic competition who has the cheapest money. And I think for somebody who's a real estate entrepreneur, we really have to see how something can be improved, changed, built that the marketplace is going to respond to and where, because it takes a unique vision, the cost of entry is much lower than where everybody can see the opportunity and uh, uh, returns are, are bid way down. Yeah, I mean, I have a saying that I believe in, and it's, I think it's risky to be safe. And I agree it's, with you. Uh, much safer to take a riskier approach. And, um, you know, it's, yeah. I often reflect back on the 1950s, the safest investment that, even though we're coming back to those times, that you could make if you were a trustee for a, for a widow or an orphan, as we would say, is invest in 30-year treasury bills, which at the time might have been selling for 1.5%. Well, it was very safe until inflation came along, and uh, suddenly those uh, interest rates were 10% and higher, and those bonds were worth half or, or even less uh, than what you paid. So just like you say, uh, sometimes being safe is being very unsafe because you often buy things at the peak rather than on a, on a, on a value basis. Right. So let's, let's carry on with the story. So you have the ability, you figure out at a young age, to visualize street corners in the city without actually standing on them. So how do you take the leap then to start your own company? I know that you started Time Equities with a very small loan. I mean, and now you've, you've turned it into a company with 4,000 multifamily apartment units, valued over $4 billion. How, how do you get from there? What is the leap? And then, I mean, I know we, we only have 20, 20, 30 minutes, but, um, and a lot of this is in your book and, and, you know, but what happened? It's a long story, but basically I took a step-by-step approach rather than some grand vision. And I sort of took what was in front of me and then took it to the next step. So early in my career, my the first couple of buildings that I got involved with were actually owned by a friend of, uh, of my father's. And uh, the person who was running these buildings was having trouble leasing them. And I basically figured out a way to lease them up. And then... I wanted to buy a building, and I found a small building in Greenwich Village. And as as many real estate entrepreneurs do when they're starting out, I raised the money from from four family and friends, and uh, that's how I bought my first building. Well, what does that conversation look like? <laughs> you know, you're you know, going to family friends. I, I found this this little the address is twenty three Barrow Street. And, uh, you know, I think I bought it for $60,000, got a mortgage of forty-five, and needed $15,000 cash, which I didn't have. 
and uh, you know, I talked to some friend of mine who was, you know, we were both very young, whatever, however old we were, and uh, his dad had a little bit of money that he was wanted to invest, so he was one of the first investors. Uh, somebody else that I met, uh, I met him leasing an office from him, and uh, he, he said he had some extra money that he wanted to invest. So, you know, I just, uh, I didn't actually take any money from my father because he didn't have any. <laughs> um, just uh, somehow pasted together three or four uh, investors who, who provided me with the capital to buy the first deal. I, I think I might have scraped together uh, 2500 or something. So a lot um, of people listening to the story are going to shrug and say, all right, that was back then. This was years ago. $60,000 for a building. It's not that much to loan or to get that kind of money. You know, you think the same spirit of acquiring a piece of real estate in such a great neighborhood is still applicable today? Is that something that, you know, someone could do? I think it's, it's harder. Of course, it depends on where New York City's price points have grown, although they're shrinking at the moment. Other places, it's possible to to make have smaller transactions. I mean, this this was 50 years ago, so today uh, the, the numbers might be different, but it might be possible to find something that costs a million dollars. Or and I think it's possible. I think the business has developed and matured a lot. It's important to. You know, if you want to operate on a certain scale, then it's better to align yourself with a more sophisticated financial source. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, thinking back, uh, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago, there was a, somebody that I met playing tennis, sort of knew his father a little bit. And uh, he heard me as we were going out to play tennis, talking on the car about a certain deal out in Portland, Oregon. He said, oh, you know, my dad and I are, are uh, bidding on that deal. And uh, I said, well, maybe we shouldn't compete and we should do it together, which we ultimately did. Mm -hmm. And we went on to buy 20 or 30 buildings out in, in the West Coast together. And, and that young man eventually moved out there to run our portfolio. So in his case, he had access to, well, to me, to his father, who had some money, but he also was a broker working for Newmark at the time, and I know that he got some of the Newmark, his Newmark colleagues, to put in some money, because mm -hmm. uh, he would raise a certain share, and we would raise more. He might have raised forty percent; we raised sixty or something. Right. Um, so I think that uh, where there's a will, there's a way, particularly today, where there's tends to be a su surplus of capital in the world looking for uh, good places to go. Mm -hmm. But you have to be very knowledgeable and very compelling. It takes a lot to convince people. So let me touch on that for a second, because Time Equities, your company, is, you, you have properties in 30 states, five Canadian provinces. You've got property in Germany, the Netherlands. How do you become educated in so many different markets where, where you can make an educated decision to purchase something and uh, then what else are you looking at where, where are the next big markets in your opinion 
first of all, I have a, a team of acquisition asset management folks who work in my office, and they're always keeping their eye out looking for new transactions. Sometimes they come to them because we own another property in, in that market. Sometimes they come from uh, one-off. I remember the first deal we did in the Netherlands, I was actually exploring with one of our acquisition asset managers from, from New York. And, you know, we weren't finding anything in, in Spain. And he says, you know, I just got this set up from, from a broker I know, some deal in the Netherlands. They've gone through a, a downside and I can buy a 10 cap uh, on this building, which has uh, a good credit tenant in it. So that sounds interesting. Why don't you check it out? Which he did. It turned out to be true. And ultimately, uh, as I say, we now own, I think, 40 buildings in Holland. And we have an asset management office there. And uh, we're, we're very engaged in the market. Mm -hmm. Part of it, it turns out that real estate, to some degree, is a portable skill. Market characteristics are very different, but um, some of the fundamentals carry over almost everywhere. Once you develop a strong skill set, those skills are exportable. I'm sure, Sean, that you would be a very effective marketing and sales and sales strategy, whether you were in New York, California, Paris, or uh, Tokyo. I mean, you have the innate skills that go with them and right. they're not that different in those other places you would have to learn the marketplace so what Often are the what are the fundamentals in in acquiring a property those the essential fundamentals that apply across different markets it depends on the nature of the properties but let's assume for right now we're talking about income investment properties that you're buying for income so there the question starts out what is the property earning today? What is the in-place cap rate? And once you execute your business plan, uh, what will it be in three years, five years, whatever the time period is that it takes to execute the business plan? So maybe today it's a 52% occupied building and it makes 7%. And you're thinking, well, if I can lease it up, to 85%, which is the average occupancy in the submarket, it'll make 10%. So you, then you have to form a judgment of those reasonable returns. It turned out it was making 3% today, and you had to wait five years and hope to make it make 6%. You might say, well, that's not very good. Mm -hmm. So what does it make today? What does it make in the future? I think those are kind of core concepts for income properties. And if you're going to build a building, it's fundamentally the same question. When I get through building it, how much am I going to earn? I'm going to earn 5 6 or 8%. And depending on, on the nature of the building, that drives, drives the bus. You know, often you'll hear developers talk about what, what return are you building into? And by that, they mean what return when it's all built when it's leased up according to your pro forma expenses, how much are you going to make at that time? That's critical in deciding whether to proceed or not. I think what you're describing, it, it, it's kind of it's common sense. It makes complete sense, except for one fact that you kind of have to have a crystal ball on your desk to see what the future income is going to be. No, there's, there's some 
some Very risk. Much. Yes, but you know there are various tools that, as you know, we apply. One, what are comparable rents in the market? Uh, that's a very important metric. And then we look at what are the occupancies in the market. So, if it's if it's re if it's office and the average occupancy is eighty five percent, your building is fifty two. You say, well, there's no reason if this building is is uh, brought up to standard, why it shouldn't be rented like every other building in the market. You know, if it's a new building that you're going to build, if it's a multifamily and everybody in the market is at a 91 or 93% occupancy, well, you say, okay, we'll lease up to that occupancy and you know what the rents are today and you make a judgment that you'll be able to achieve those rents. Now, of course, it's more complicated than that because the absorption may or may not be there, but if you base it on what's going on in the marketplace today, it's usually a good place to start in terms of making a prediction for two to three years from now. Right. So you've bought so many properties in your career. Is there a moment that's consistent in a way you feel about a deal before you pull the trigger or before you make up a, you know, your mind and say, yes, this is a deal I'm going after, I'm going to buy this property? Is, is, do you get a rush of adrenaline? Is there a certain <laughs> ritual you have? Is there, does it feel, are you jaded now where you've, you've done so many, it's just like, okay, I'll buy that one. Um, how does it feel? We approach most transactions with, with great caution and uh, a great conservatism because it's not a straight line and things go wrong. And uh, in fact, one of my the mottos that I, I use in my family is expect the unexpected. So if you're not conservative in the way you view the deal to begin with, then you're going to get into trouble because something's not going to work that you aren't seeing at the moment. So if you been cautious in what your expectations are, you have a better chance of achieving them than if you're pushing things to the maximum. Right. Well, the um, name of your book is Risk Game, and the opening chapter is Expect the Unexpected. And, and okay, you, there you go. You, you reference, yeah, I mean, 2020, talk about a year of unexpected, and, and we can get a little bit into that. I don't know how you could have expected, or anyone for that matter, could expect kind of what we're seeing in the city, but... Going to 50 West, you know, that was a project you kind of were in the inception in 2008 when the world fell apart financially. And you must have had some feelings about that deal. Well, you know, and, I, was, I was certainly unhappy because we yeah. were working on it for, for an extended period of time. And uh, we were at the beginning of construction, as you know from the book. And uh, I had to pull the plug and say, stop. Um, it's not a good thing to do. I was having lunch with a, with a developer friend today. He's sitting on a project uh, trying to figure out whether to to go move ahead or not. He already owns the, the land. It's, it's in New York City. And, uh, you know, he was trying, very, very, very accomplished guy, very smart. And, uh, you know, he was trying to figure out uh, where the marketplace is going to be. And if you're a developer, sometimes if you come into the recovery of a market early, it's not bad because there's a, a limit on supply. People have been holding back on, on new development. 
So sometimes if you can get your timing exactly right, so that sometimes encourages people to start at times that might seem adverse. So what did you advise uh, uh, this gentleman? I said to be cautious and that uh, I would, uh, what I said was that while it's true, what happens if you're looking for that magic moment, if you come a little early, you may be able to rent or sell whatever the product is, but the pricing will be compressed because it'll still be reflecting tough times in the market. If you're a little bit late, then you can pick up the uplift that's going to occur at that magic moment. So I said, you know, until one has a clear vision, particularly with new development, which this was, wait until you really have confidence that things have stabilized and are turning around. As you know, the life of a building a major project is, I mean, just the construction time is often three years for a large building, which this, this one that we were talking about was. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard call. But right. I, I think, mean, if he, if he waits too long, maybe it, it, he'll wait too long. Um, he could miss, but you know, my theory is that if you come in early, before that point, you're going to sacrifice a lot of price or, or rents. And it's better to be a little bit late. Maybe you're not the first building on the market. Maybe you're the second, third, or even fifth. But the market will have momentum. Personally, I learned with 50 West, it's better to wait until you see a clear moment than to be too early. Uh, you know, one of the best decisions I ever made was stopping that project when I did and then bringing it back when conditions uh, had stabilized and seemed to be improving, even though the velocity was low, but you could see positive trends. Mm -hmm. Right now in New York, we're not yet at the point that we can see positive trends. Right. So we, where do you think we are right now with New York? I mean, no, no, you know, the consensus that I get speaking to so many people is no one really knows, right? There's so many different opinions out there. There are people that are bullish. There, I'd say for the most part, there are people who are down on New York. They're saying New York is over. People are leaving. The tax situation is just prohibitive for wealthy people. The city is getting more dangerous. There's more homeless people. Our subway system seems to be a bit of a mess, and now we have this pandemic on us. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think of where we are right now as a city, and where do you see us going? Well, I, I share all of those concerns that you just, you just listed, and I see this as a very bleak moment. Do I think there's a potential for a turnaround? Yes. It's going to come from a variety of sources. We need leadership that understands better than our current leadership does the ingredients that an economic recovery require. I think that's lacking in the body politic today uh, because it's been expedient to be anti-growth, anti-business, and uh, um, to ignore the economic sources of the money that drives New York's admirable social programs. So I'm not against the social programs, but you have to appreciate what it takes to have the economic engine 
that provides the money for them. And that was something that got lost. So we're going to have to see a different political point of view, which, to think back, uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg had that point of view when he came into the city, which was also at a difficult point. What Mayor Bloomberg did for New York City was incredible, and I think he ran it more like a business. Um, And I I think, just personally, New York City should be run by a mayor who's more business-oriented than politically motivated. And um, um, I, I agree with you. On the other hand, Bloomberg had a great sensitivity to the social needs of New York absolutely. and, and was, was very positive about those. So this is not uh, an abandonment of New York's social agenda uh, and the needs of our population, but it's a recognition that paying for those needs has to come from a positive business environment because you don't get money from the poor. Um, You get money from successful businesses, a successful property market, all the things that uh, um, our current body politic is trying to distance itself from and not support. So So, I'm going to officially endorse you for the next mayor of New York City. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, thank you. No, and all jokes aside... Is it? I mean, you've done so much with your real estate career, and you've published and you've written two books. And you know, there's got to come a point in your time, you know, in your career, you've been so successful. And you know, maybe you don't see it that way now because you know you don't look backwards; you look forward. But if you stop for a second and look back and look at your success, is there a moment in time where you think you would pivot and contribute to, you know, become involved politically and maybe run for mayor? all jokes aside, because it would take someone with your understanding of business and social conscience to turn the city around. Well, I, I appreciate that, uh, that that sense of confidence. I have long held, although a certain person has proven me very, very wrong, that uh, it's not a real estate and politics are not a good mix. And, uh, <laughs> Don't we know that now? <laughs> uh, and that uh, even though... Uh, I'm a political voyeur and I'm and very connected with, with the political process. I, 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 I respect uh, political leaders because it's a very complex um, environment who have a great deal of experience and bring all, those expertise, all that expertise to the moment, notwithstanding that Bloomberg, of course, didn't have any when he got elected right. uh, and, and is an example of a success. But I... I think uh, this requires a level of political uh, sensitivity that uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm the best. And I'd rather support other leadership. I, as you know, I spent a great, probably 40% of my time working on not-for-profit uh, issues, and many of them related to the city that I think can, can be helpful. Uh, but uh, I think you should run for mayor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I appreciate your endorsement. I'm not uh, withdrawing my endorsement for you, though. Thanks. But, you know, I, I guess when we take a step back, right, we're in New York City. We see it. We walk the streets. We kind of feel it. We see more homeless people under the shelters, uh, out of shelters. We see it's a different feeling. But I think, you know, New York City was really devastated by COVID-19. But when we look at the globe, we see this happening, and it's, it seems to be endemic of like 
major urban environments. If we look at San Francisco, we look at London. There are a lot of cities around the world that are feeling this kind of pain that we're feeling in New York City. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm more expert on New York than London and, and, and some of the other places that you've mentioned. First of all, we're, we are at a, a, a difficult moment for New York because particularly when we think about the middle and upper middle class, a lot of the things that attract people to be here when they have lots of other choices are not here right now. Uh, many people in New York are drawn here by uh, the culture, by theater, by uh, music, opera, uh, um, which is very important, by the art world, by the sporting sporting world. You know, we have world-class sports events here all the time. Um, all of this adds to the vibrancy of New York, and that's been gone since March, as we all know. Um, in addition to which, the restaurant life in New York was a key now, fortunately, as you know, that's come back a bit in these wonderful street cafes that restaurants have been allowed to open and expand when previously they weren't. And that's brought, at least to the downtown where I am, around the village, great vibrancy and is one of the early positive signs. New York's also lacking 50 million tourists who come here every year. If you think about that, it's a million tourists a week. So that alone represented a very significant part of our population. And actually, you know, I think New York's population is around 8 million, greater New York, 12 million, I don't know the exact numbers. But Manhattan is probably closer to two or two and a half million. I'm not sure of the exact numbers. And most of those million tourists were right here. So the population, if you include the tourists of New York, have probably shrunk, never mind the New Yorkers who've left, by 30. So we've had a huge uh, population decrease in a short period of time, which is a, is a major problem. The good news is that when and if the world returns to some sense of normality, hopefully we can resurrect the reason that so many tourists love to come here, and uh, that will help. That'll be an important driver of the economic recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the issue of people who left because of, of taxation reasons, which started really with the last tax reform bill, which effectively increased dramatically the cost of New York State as a place to live because of the not being able to offset your state taxes against your federal tax liabilities, so-called SALT. That's a problem that's not changing. So uh, we've lots of challenges. Uh, what, do you th what do you think about the problem and, that, uh, you know, maybe a lot of these people who work in office buildings who now are realizing they can work from home as efficiently and as effectively, maybe not full-time, but a large portion of their time, are not going to come back to these office buildings in the same way that they used to. They may not have the same requirement of space. Yeah, that's obviously a major question, which I've spent uh, <laughs> able to now thinking think about every day. But I think there are some interesting indices that suggest that that will not be as great a change as we think. Gensler, uh, architectural firm, did a poll or survey of office users 
And that showed that 80%, 80% of all office workers wanted to return from their uh, work-at-home routines to the office. 38% of them wanted to return full-time. And the balance of 42 wanted to return either three or four days a week. I found that very important. And when they were asked why they wanted to return to the office, they said either for personal social contact or for business social contact. So we find that the, 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 the social nature of people requires uh, a proximity that doesn't occur at home over Zoom or whatever your favorite uh, communication tool is. I also read recently, uh, just last week or something, that the productivity of work at home has slipped. I read that J.P. Morgan has ordered all of their traders back to the office as of this week, I think. This mm -hmm. all happened last week. Yeah. So that's another telling trend. We also see that some of the big tech companies continued commitments expanding their office footprint. So I think the, the world is not going to be, uh, and the work-at-home phenomena will not be an all-or-nothing proposition by a long shot. And even people who want to be in the office three days a week, I'm not sure they want to be nomads don't want to have a designated place to work. And uh, I, I imagine that you know uh, Ryan Simonetti. Mm -hmm. He who's done a lot of thinking about office use. And his theory is that what what's the things that staff wants will drive employers' decisions because we know that there's competition these days for talented staff members. If people in a formal workplace employers will provide them. And there are issues of accountability. So I think there'll be some diminution, but I don't think it's going to be, or at least I'm hoping it's not going to be as dramatic as some people might assume. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, there, where there is kind of distress that we're seeing now, there's opportunity. And I think the creative innovators and entrepreneurs that, that will kind of answer the question and provide something of value will do very well. And I see that both in the commercial and the residential world, you know, where we kind of provide things that people value in, in a unique way. And, uh, I mean, retail is another story. I, I don't know what's going to happen with retail. Any thoughts on that? Well, the retail, the challenge of e-commerce uh, existed, of course, pre-COVID. I think the numbers that we've seen is that online sales have gone from 12% of the marketplace to 16, which was what was predicted for three years from now. So it, it uh, contracted, in a sense, the time frame. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think, again, there are a variety, a wide variety of retail uses that can't be provided over the Internet. You can't get your hair cut over the Internet. You can't work out over the Internet. You can't go to a restaurant over the internet. There's a whole spectrum of uses that, that, that are not even uh, a possibility for adoption by, uh, by e-commerce. And I think we're seeing a merging that's happening today between 
uh, digital marketing and bricks and mortar market, where, uh, you know, even something as simple as being able to have a pickup point in a shopping center where you pre-order stuff and pick it up as opposed to have it delivered to you is an innovation that people seem to appreciate. You know, a lot of digital interaction uh, that uh, was not possible before, I'm just working on a certain concept involving, uh, I'm not sure I want to announce it right now, but a a certain kind of retailing where the retail would have like a kind of a showroom space and um, uh, these are retailers that are around the world in, in very specialized products and some of their marketplaces in New York and they would sort of have this showroom here and there would be a common salesperson so they wouldn't have to staff them but people from the home store so to speak could interact with their customers over Zoom mm-hmm. so you know, again, a blending of traditional uh, retail or bricks and mortar retail with technological innovation doesn't necessarily uh, equal e-commerce. Right. Brandon is creating a uh, um, an adaptation by retailers. Sounds really interesting. I mean, I was fascinated when I saw. It was kind of ironic when I saw Amazon start to open up bricks and mortar stores. Exactly. Um, um, and they're great. I mean, I love going into them. It's almost like the best curated material, the best books, the best products. You know, and I think when they work in synergy, uh, you know, it's probably the most effective and successful way to sell. Do you have a favorite building in New York City? I have to start with my own. I like 50 West Street. I have goodness. to, and I have to agree. And I'm not saying this to like blow well, smoke. I mean, I have to say 50 West has to be, if not the one of the the best curtain wall buildings, architecturally in the city. It's just beautiful. Um, and I'll be honest with you. When I saw it going up, I was kind of like, you know, I saw the renderings, and very often, you know, as marketing people, the renderings kind of exceed the reality. But um, your building at 50 West was the exact opposite. And I thought, you know, now it's like one of those beautiful buildings on the southern tip of Manhattan that if, you, if you're coming up the Hudson or going down the West Side Highway and you see it, it's just a really beautiful addition to the skyline. So congratulations and well, thank you for improving the skyline. Well, thank you for that, for that feedback. I appreciate it. You know, uh, I would say that for me, you know, I've always been a great admirer of of, of townhouses or, or brownstones in New York. Um, I live in one, for instance. I don't live in a in a high rise building, and I think they're uh, they're both uh, they're very beautiful architecturally. They create a context for neighborhoods that is sort of very friendly and reassuring. I remember, uh, you know, I used to when I was younger, I would walk down the street, you know nice brownstone blocks and look up and you you wouldn't exactly be able to see in, but sometimes you could see a little bit in through the windows and, you know, you could imagine the apartments or or the life that was going in them. And uh, something very accessible and connecting about that, which larger buildings uh, don't have because you don't have that sort of immediacy and that connection. Mm -hmm. So I've always had a great fondness for for the brownstones or uh, t- townhouses of, of, of New York and, 
and think that's a very important part of our street streetscape. And you know, of course, it's why I live downtown as opposed to neighborhoods that are more dominated by high rises. Right. Well, I think you'd look really good in Gracie Mansion. <laughs> well. Uh, I'd like you to consider my you. endorsement. I'll be, there. I'll be there visiting the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what you bring us next and what you do to the skyline and um, what you continue to contribute. Um, very exciting. I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. It's always a pleasure. I always learn something in conversations with you, and thank you for that. And uh, wish you continued success. And um, thank you very much. Well, Sean, thanks for, for making this conversation possible. And, uh, you know, you're a wonderful uh, interviewer or person to have a conversation with because your intellect is, is, is wide and encompassing. And uh, I appreciate the exchange I always have. Well, in, in sales, I learned... Well, I, pre I appreciate it. In sales, I learned it's not really the answers you get, it's the questions you ask. If you don't ask the right question, you're not going to get the answer that you want. So, uh, Fair enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And enjoy the rest of the day. Stay safe, healthy, and um, I, I look forward to seeing your next project. Thanks so much, Sean. Take care. All right. Thank you. You too, Bye. Francis. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah.